is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. On April 6th, 2017, hundreds of people gathered together to celebrate the release of St. Paul Almanac's 11th book. In downtown St. Paul at Black Dog Cafe, people from all walks of life came together to hear stories read from St. Paul Almanac's Volume 11 on a collected path. Here are some of the authors reading their amazing work. Now, I would like to welcome to the mic uh, the St. Paul Almanac Executive Director, Kimberly Nightingale. One of my favorite things about um, doing this every year is to see all of you in this room together. You are just a beautiful crowd, and I want to say a few things about how I feel about you. I really am proud to be a St. Pauline. I'm really proud that you are my neighbors, and I'm really proud that you're the writers, you're the editors, you're the activists making this city the best city it can be. And we can get better. And part of that is the St. Paulman. We have a vision that we can be the best city that the world has ever seen by bringing all of us together, by talking to each other, by telling each other deep, heartfelt, true stories of our town. And this is our town, and these are our stories. And there's so much power in this room to make our world the best world it can be right here in St. Paul. And I want to thank each of you for coming tonight. It's a big, it's lots of work to show up, especially downtown. And it's a lot of work to be published in the Almanac and take their risk, all of the writers. It's very scary to put your words out in public. It takes enormous courage. And I, I, I know that it's very scary. And I want to thank you for your courage. And all the artists, same thing. It takes a lot of courage to put your work and your vision out there in the public world. And these books are sold worldwide. We sell over 2,000 each year. They're sold in over 50 stores. And it's really your words and your vision that's carried across the continent. I want to thank everyone, and uh, glad to be here. St. Paul Almanac is a literary-centered arts organization. We share stories uh, across cultures and cultivate dialogue to promote understanding, relationships, and collaborative action. That's a rare thing to do for any organization, especially a literary one, and speaks to how important the arts are at this point in time. Um, but the centerpiece of what we do is, of course, the book. And this year we uh, have had a great team, uh, but also we had people working in various editor roles. Um, I want to introduce to you uh, our executive editor, Pamela Fletcher, and our editor-in-chief, Shaquan Foster. 
I am so excited to be here and to see you all. This is just fantastic. Isn't it? So fantastic. Thank you all for coming. This is how we do it. We come together. You see how all these people, how we came together to make this book. This is why this book is important. This is why we do what we do. This is how we get everybody involved. And it is a family project. I mean, this is community. And so um, if it wasn't for you, each and every one of you played the part, we would not have the um, um, what is it, the 11th edition of the St. Paul Almanac. I just want to give a special thank you to everyone that helped put the book together. So writers, artists, all the contributors, thank you guys so much for helping. Couldn't do it without you. And especially to the community editors, our proofreaders, our typesetter, everyone, layout, everything that goes into putting this book together, the three of us could not have done it alone. It certainly would not be as amazing as it is. So thank you all for contributing. Thank you all for helping make this a reality. And enjoy the book. Thank you. Okay, I would like to invite Sid Carlson White to the mic. Now, Sid is very humble. <laughs> He's very humble, and he doesn't really want to tell his great, fantastic news. I'm going to tell you. Because it's important to me. And he told me tonight that because of us, all of us, the St. Paul Almanac, that he's going to Yale! This has been my third year as a community editor with the St. Paul Almanac, and I hope, I dearly hope it will not be my last. But for me, the project has been really transformative because there are over, to my knowledge, 280,000 people in the city of St. Paul, and in my entire lifetime, I will not be able to go up to every single one of them and find out exactly who they are, where they've come from, and where they plan to be going in their lives. But this project, and reading probably over 2,000 stories and poems across all of the editions at this point, has taught me what it means to be a citizen of St. Paul, and how that can mean so many different things. And being able to sit at the table with the 20 to 30 other editors and listen to how they interpret what we're reading and what we're seeing and the world around them has been really powerful for me because it has allowed me to understand what it means to be a part of where you live. And I think, well, not everyone will have the opportunity to be able to discuss and evaluate the merits and how powerful all of the pieces we see are. I think when you open this book, you'll have so many different and profound slices of St. Paul, you'll get a chance to be in our shoes, essentially, and be a part of this as a reader. So thank you very much for coming and for reading. Um, next, uh, I want to introduce to you a beloved St. Paulite. Um, Nathaniel Fleek, uh, who will reflect on the dedications that are in this year's book. Yeah. Each year we dedicate the book to two prominent St. Paul individuals. And uh, this year, those two people are Victoria Davis and Merle Harris. So, uh, <laughs> 
Kukuyama that has been one of the uh, building blocks, of the many building blocks that have made our community and our city strong. Uh, I know many of you will think that it's a uh, clear case of a conflict of interest, but I nominated my wife as one of them. But after I tell you a little bit about her, and um, Kim said I got two minutes. You know, this strong, beautiful black queen uh, raised four children, ran a business, operated a nonprofit called the Summer University Education Consortium, and um, ran that for almost 30 years. It was a tutorial program for African American students they were struggling in school, and uh, they had a uh, session twice a week. And then during the summer, which sometimes I used to complain and cut into our vacation time, they ran a, a summer program. And, uh, you know, this sister is a, a super lady, yeah. and she's had an impact on many, many, many children, you know, throughout our community. And back then, she knew that black lives mattered. <laughs> and, not only, and not only did she come to that conclusion because of the condition many of our children were going through and she decided not to just talk about it, but to do something about it. And so she has had a tremendous impact. She's been my, my soul partner and I thank Almighty God for making us, making us as one and for making her part of our community. I'm from St. Paul, she's from Memphis, Tennessee, but she brought a lot of that Southern love and compassion to St. Paul, and I love her dearly for that. When I came home out of the service and Selby was really jumping, I stopped by a shoe shop right where the Louisiana Cafe is on the Gale Street side and walked in there to uh, get a shoe shine and inquire about having my shoes repaired. And, um, you know, back then I was in the grave of ignorance and self-destruction, came in there talking loud to some other brothers and so forth. And this gray-haired man said, hey, we're not having that in here. I said, who does he think he is? And that brother was Merle Harris. And Merle Harris, you know, being raised without a father, he taught me what a man was really about. And he stood on solid ground. He didn't just talk about faith, but he lived it in his words and his actions. And as Selby was deteriorating, this brother held on. And he kept talking about accentuating the positives because every week there was negative press about Selby Avenue. And any of you that are from St. Paul, you remember those days. And this brother held on. You know, he, he was a, a superhero. He was a true American hero. He was a World War II veteran. He loved his wife, he loved his family, and he loved his community. And what I love most about Merle is the brother had backbone. He didn't just talk one way in front of this group and another way in front of somebody else. He was serious. And he spoke and talked with a straight back. And out of this hard work back then, when the east end of uh, Selby 
was thriving and the West End was, die, was dying, a Merle kept pushing on Selby and Milton, where the Golden Time Cafe is. That building there was about to be torn down. And Merle said, wait a minute, I want that building. And he helped to resurrect that building, and that was the seed that helped the resurgence and sell the coming back, not just on the, uh, on the east end, but also on, on the west end. And he gave his life and dedicated his life to our community, and for that we will all be eternally grateful for his great sacrifice. And when you think about um, the legacy that people leave behind, people can point to structures and other things, but, but this brother, uh, along with my wife, they helped to build humanity and they, and they trusted folks' humanity and they love their humanity and they believe in their humanity. And so every time you drive down Selby Avenue, you, you think about my dear friend and her father, this is a daughter Joyce, uh, Merle Harris, and the bridge crossing from Hamlin onto the other side, they tore that bridge down and was dragging their feet about putting it back together. And uh, there was one person that stirred up the pot and got them to put the bridge back together. So when you drive by there and you look on the south side of the bridge, you will see a plaque of my dear brother that we had that bridge dedicated to. So once again, I want to thank St. Paul Amalek for telling our story. Not just telling them, but keeping them alive and in our own words. God, peace and bless you. Thank you. She is an honorary board member uh, for this for Almanac, and she is here tonight to read a poem in a new edition called Pete. So, Carol Conley, St. Paul I'm so happy to be here. I'm tripping. I mean, this way. You're a beautiful audience, and we are all very lucky to be here tonight. This poem is from the new Almanac. Heat. After the relentless heat of a long, dry summer, the horizon blazes the color of endings. A hard wind blows. Soon the trees are out of leaf, and one morning your rooms, like mine, are cold. You push a switch, you feel the heat rise, and your belief in the God of your childhood is restored. All the little losses knotted up in your heart begin to loosen and unravel. The one who disturbs you stops calling, and a soft rain begins. Thank you. So our second author is Brittany Miss Britt Lynch, who's a Twin Cities based poet, TV and radio personality, actress, entrepreneur, creative consultant, and community organizer. So she's busy. So we're glad she's here with us. Working interdependently between media art, curation, and social justice, Brittany has emerged as a tastemaker for the local entertainment scene. For more information, visit Miss or heymissbrit.com. That's heymissbrit.com. So, 
with that, I'm going to introduce her to the fence. The um, I have two poems. I'm only going to read one. Um, the poem I'm reading is on page 270, um, and I have another poem on page 192. I want to dedicate both of these pieces, or this one piece that I'm going to read especially, um, to Chad Robertson, who was from the Twin Cities and was shot and killed by the police about a month ago. He is the younger brother of a dear friend of mine. and. Um, Unfortunately, over the weekend, their mother was also shot and killed, and so my friend has now lost her brother and her mother to senseless gun violence, and um, this poem is about grief and how we get through it. So this is energy transferring over. I remember when I got the news. Phone found floor, back found wall, hand found heart to make sure it wasn't me who died and said. Room fell silent. As noise ran in fear that it would be next because death has a funny way of doing that to noise, drowning out sound, burning all logic until you question what it is that you just heard. But I remember what I heard. It was the sound of energy transferring over, of ancestors meeting, of babies being sent to earth, of time and space stretching. And every time we thought we'd lost one, we'd gain one somewhere else. And time opened up, creating space for birth to grow, giving room for beings to show themselves in new form, and it was so. Ancestral infants with the strongest gaze, they've been here before. They know what they're looking for. And we cry like babies until tears fall back and fill our ears with water, and we drown in our reality, now realizing what it is that we just heard. And in that moment, body finds gravity, Feet finds floor, heart finds heaviness of a different beat no more, but the spirit finds awakening, energy of a new kind. And with the closing of ceremonies, we become open to finding ways of being without their presence, but falling short every time because energy doesn't die, it is only transferred. And so we see them again, sooner than we think and different than we imagined. But a sign is what we hoped for, and they gave us many. We see their hands as our gardens grow. We see their portraits in the sunset, familiar faces in strangers, and in our silence, our stillness, we hear laughter from the other side, and they say, I remember when I heard the news, whisperings of a party on the other side, and I finally got invited. And it was my turn to transfer over into something larger than I've ever been before. And in that moment, eyes found stars, hands found earth, heart found you. Don't weep for me. This wasn't the death of my being. This was simply my energy transferring over. Thank you. Joy Yang was born in Laos and came to the U.S. as a toddler. Um, he now lives in the Como Park neighborhood of St. Paul with his wife and two kids. And this publication in this year's almanac is his first published piece of writing. So with that, Joy uh, Yang. All right. Lots of people. 
Yes, this is my first reading. This is my first poem being published. Um, I get to read first, right? Um, yeah, page number 197 if you want to follow along. And uh, thank you to uh, St. Paul Manac and Black Dog for giving me this opportunity. Uh, before I read, I just want to uh, let you know that the first part of my reading is named I Didn't Write That. That is from uh, a man named Irvin Morris. And it's an excerpt from a, a Navajo creation story. So here we go. Refugee, 1984. There, the locusts led them into the third world, which was white, through a crooked opening. Again, scouts were sent out, and again, they found nothing. But in time, they discovered that this world was inhabited by grasshoppers. Urban Moors. Summer stretched two steel beams out into a vertical horizon. My head laid on one, the color of all tobacco, listening. Warmed by the sun, it soothed my ear, like a Hmong mother's ribcage, how it should. I waited to hear a heartbeat, the one that would tell me everything I needed to know. But there's a loud shimmering of translucent wings. I departed from the tracks, heavier with technite pellets from my sunshine. Through tall grass and scattered trash, I found the path back to McDonough. Ahead of me, flying grasshoppers kept pace. Our next author is Edna McKernan. Uh, she is the author of three collections of poems. Caravan, The One Who Swears You Can't Start Over, and The Sky Thick With Fireflies. Widely published in anthologies and literary journals, she twice received the Minnesota State Arts Board Fellowship in Literature. Kernan earned her MFA from Warren Wilson College in 2004 and works as a homeless advocate in Hennepin County. So with that, I put the Kernan to you. Thanks, it's great to be here tonight. I love this book to pieces. Um, my short poem is on page 272. It's called 99 Sheep. All the sheep were raised in St. Paul, where they have retired. <laughs> I move toward the zone of sleep, but it eludes me. There are sheep on the other side. Their little baas and bleats fill the air. Below my bedroom window, the scrape of metal hoisting snow, metal shovel hoisting snow. Close to midnight now, back and forth it goes, another irritant in the ether. Then the wanderings begin. How do squirrels live till spring? Why is the mind an elastic thing that curves memory and bends it to another form? Where have I put that new tube of toothpaste? Could I hire a hitman for my supervisor? And please, how far away is Mexico this long, long winter? Come, little sheep, lead me home to sleep.
novel, Watertown flies. So with that, or Watertown fires, I'm sorry. With that, I will give you David Mendel. If you want to follow along, my story is on uh, page 160. It's called Night Rider. On Friday, July 3rd, I went for a night bike ride in the city. I've been wanting to do this for a year, ever since I saw some guys riding through the city at night on their bikes. I wondered how exhilarating it would feel to ride haphazardly through the city at night. So I did it. And it was amazing. The city is a different place at night. It's quiet, sleepy, and peaceful, but there's an edge to it. It's the resting heartbeat of an animal. An uncertainty that isn't dangerous, but it makes you a little uncomfortable. The night I went, the moon was blood red, and it was quite a sight. I could smell it, I could hear it, I could feel it. Since it was the eve of the 4th, fireworks were being shot throughout the city neighborhoods. I paused for a moment to look at the fireworks show on the east side of the city. I saw the night riders and there was a weird solidarity, but it was probably in my head. Riding at night slows everything down, including yourself. I could feel the noise of flooding my mind being stilled by the night. Calming, clearing. It was just me on my bike in the middle of the city, in the dark, and I wasn't scared, only curious. What's that over there? What's that sound? What's that smell? I saw a young brother skateboarding down Kellogg, homeless people at the depot. Cologne and perfume of a couple walking downtown. Mirrors parking people having a late night dinner on a patio. A crowded gas station on 7th Street and a packed church on the east side. I rolled to the top of the city to Indian Miles Park and paused to watch the city sparkle. There was a lot going on that night, but yet the city fell still. I rode about 20 miles across the city that night. It's funny how you can feel so alive while everyone else is sleeping. Our next author is John Magneta Trigg. Uh, I first met Joan as a bookseller at the Hungry Mind Bookstore and was more than happy to work with her and a bunch of other great people. Um, so I'm glad she's here like I am with everyone else, but uh, she's still a bookseller, and which is really cool. Um, but uh, a few things about Joan. She would rather tell you about herself the essays she writes, but when pressed, she will say that she's a creative nonfiction writer, a bookseller, a grandmother of four, and she has published essays in Cheers to Muses, Contemporary Works by Asian American Women, and the Journal of Asian American Renaissance. She has an MFA from Hamlin University and is, sorry David, most adamantly from St. Paul. <laughs> so, Joan, if you want to come up again. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll be reading from my first essay called Where I Belong. Oh, it's on page 20. St. Paul is my home. I am made of the water and air of this place. I am accustomed to the short urban horizon, to the slant of sun that never reaches the top of the sky. In the morning, I expect the incessant conversation of sparrows, the cheer of robins, and the occasional resonant call of a cardinal, 
threaded with the sound of traffic from the freeway, cars passing on the street in front of our house, airplanes crossing to and from the airport from the, in the south. The smell of roasting coffee comes on an eastern breeze on some days, on others the sound of bagpipes or drums. Lilacs bloom in May, purple and fragrant. Maples and sumac flame the riverbanks in October. This is how I expect the world to be. The house we live in, husband, son, and I, was once my grandparents, my dad's folks. I only went there a few times when I was a child. Elm trees grew on the boulevards, arching over the street, creating a tunnel of shade and coolness in the summer. In my memory, the house is dark, shadowy, lined with the leggy plants my grandfather tended. The room's focal point, the aquarium, where angelfish watched me with glassy eyes. The stairs were steep, and in the, in the winter, a curtain hung at the landing to keep the warm air in the living area downstairs. I wish the wooden banister was longer and didn't have the large wooden head-sized ball band so I could try sliding down it. Sometime in the 70s, the elms were cut down to contain the spread of Dutch elm disease, and skinny ash saplings took their place. Now, every Sunday, Every Sunday evening, we have family dinner at the heavy mahogany table that used to be my grandparents, and often our five kids, with partners and children, and my dad, join us. Dad says grandma would be pleased that her house is full of children. The ash trees have grown tall and full enough to arch over and shade the street once again. Grandma's house is grandma's house once more. This has been our house for 33 years. I've never lived more than nine miles from here. This is where we raised five children, and five generations of my family have lived within these walls. One daughter with her daughter stayed with us for a year. Despite this, sometimes I have felt like I don't belong. As much as I am shaped by landscape, I am shaped by history, mine, and my family's. My grandparents came here from Minidoka, where they'd been incarcerated during World War II. They couldn't purchase the house because they were not citizens, but they couldn't become citizens because they were Japanese. The neighborhood kids yelled monkey face at my grandmother. Dad and mom, when looking for their first apartment, followed many phone calls confirming open rooms, only to be told when they arrived to look that the rooms had been filled. I never became accustomed to the question, where are you from? Nor to the fact that St. Paul was never a satisfactory answer, nor, knowing, nor to knowing my grandparents came from Japan were the only words that would stop the interrogation. This question marked me as an outsider, as someone who didn't belong. Books that acknowledged the realities of race and gender became windows to a world that included me. As I gained a larger perspective, I also gained the sense that I belong wherever I am, and where I am is St. Paul. The city is changing. When I was three in 1960, people of color made up 3% of St. Paul's population. But recently, our mayor announced that people of color now make up nearly 50% of our city. As we become more diverse, I feel more settled. It's been a long time since I've been asked where I'm from. By staying here, I am insisting that we belong, all of us, here where we have made homes, here where we are raising families, here where my grandparents and my parents decided to make their histories and their lives. The ash trees are now threatened by the emerald ash borer and it is possible that the lovely green shade that shelters our street will disappear. Minneapolis is already proactively removing some ash trees, replacing them with maple, bingo, white oak, and aspen. Though some people may regret losing the uniformity of the tree's arching height, I don't think I will. 
And I hope my grandchildren will grow up to know the beauty of variety, to appreciate the maple's leaves blowing in the sun when you walk beneath its branches, the ginkgo with its smooth trunk and fanning leaves, the aspen's green that goes to gold. I hope they will grow up knowing St. Paul is our home, knowing we belong here. I think they will. Thank you. Okay, our final reader is Michael Kiesel Moore. Um, he is the author of the poetry collection that came out last year, or two years ago, uh, What We Pray For. His work has appeared in several books and journals, including Among the Leaves, Queer Male, male Poets on the Midwestern Experience, Waterstone Review, and the St. Paul Almanac, of course. He serves as a curator of the Birch Bark Reading Series, which is a great, wonderful series. So if you want to cross the river, there's a reason. <laughs> and he lives in St. Paul. So, Michael? Well, Carol really had it right when she said, we are lucky to be here. And I just feel really blessed to be here with all of you as we celebrate this very precious work of literature and community. So I give you the poem, The Lost Language. It is on page 46. The Lost Language. I dream of finding a lost language, a language that has no words for war or any kind of violence a human can make against another. This old, forgotten language will be wise in the use of gender, not binary. This language won't even have the word for binary. And this will be a language that has more words for love than the colors of a large box of crayons, each word a new shade of care, and so vast that dictionaries fill to the brim with every different hue. And all the colors of the human clan will be described by those words of love. For when you speak of your fellow beings with love, how could you ever harm one? If we cannot find this long lost language, then let us make it now. Thank you. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.